This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Blockade Australia have challenged us to transform the system. Over one week in late June, they stopped the ports in four major Australian cities. Their banners read things like Ecosystems, Not Empire, or Australia Exports Climate Disaster, or Hope Lies in Resistance, and You'll Die Waiting for a Climate Election. As of June the 30th, some of these activists are in remand and others were let off on a good behaviour bond. In Brisbane, Justice Davis said, the High Court of Australia has made a ruling protecting the right to engage in protest. At the same time, in France, an environmental group concerned at farmers guzzling subterranean water, they're called Earth Uprising, well, they've been banned. And by reflection, looking at the burning cars and wild looting in France at the moment, is that public disillusionment with the system, first in the police police shooting of that boy, but now in a much wider series of events like this, banning an environmental group that's just trying to stop the misuse of water. This demands urgent attention. Contrast this with the disciplined, coordinated, non-violent action in Australia. I hope you'll listen to the voices of these blockaders. You can hear how they're living out an ethos of non-violence. They care for each other and they care for us. They care for nature. You will hear some of their voices as well as interviews with two people who have been working on how to change the system, transform it into something that is much better. The first is an expert in transnational environmental crime. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but environmental crime, we all know what that is. He is Professor Emeritus Rob White from University of Tasmania. His book with John van der Velden is called The Extinction Curve. And then we'll hear Dr Elizabeth Bolton. She has a military background and is all about using skillful planning to restore rebuild and protect. Her publication is called Plan E for Earth. 
Hi, I'm Jem. I'm here on the port leading into the road leading into the Brisbane port. I'm here on Yuggera land. I'm here blocking the road from the port. I'm at the top of a monopole, which is tensioned down with three ropes, blocking four lanes of traffic. Blocked there. Cops are here already. I'm doing this because this system of exploitation, of endless expansion, is not sustainable, is driving the climate collapse. Um, God, sorry, I'm a little bit breathless. It's a quick climb. Um, when Australia says that they will take climate change seriously, when they say that they are going to invest in renewable energy or participate in global forums or agreements is bullshit. Australia is more than willing to tell bold-faced lies, to manipulate numbers and to break agreements so that they can continue this exploitation and all the while playing a game of placation with the people who are affected by this climate crisis the most. We can't trust them and we can't allow the fate of our lives and the fate of this planet to rest in the hands of those who are driving the collapse and who are pocketing the cash. This climate chaos is going to affect every single person in this port, every person on these roads, every people, person in this city, in this continent and on this globe. The climate catastrophe affects us all, but those in power will not take action. Behind me, the port, it's filled with tons and tons of shipping containers with products that are designed not to last, they're designed to break, they're made cheaply from plastic that's just going to continue to pollute our soils. We've seen the effects of this climate catastrophe. It's going to get worse. We've seen what it's happening doing now. We've seen it in the fires that ravaged this area a few years ago. We saw it in the flood in Brisbane. We saw it in the floods in Lismore. We see it in the heat waves just this morning. A heat wave overseas killed hundreds of people. And these are the effects of climate catastrophe that are happening now. If we continue to wait to take action, we, 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 it'll be too late. But if we take action now and mobilize together, there is a chance for us. A future in which we live in connection with the land, where we live in connection with community, where we empower each other to make decisions that affect us all. I think cops are just sussing out the situation. Rob White is Professor Emeritus at the University of Tasmania. He's a pioneer in transnational environmental crime and co-author of a book called The Extinction Curve. Its subtitle is Growth and Globalisation in the Climate Endgame. So welcome to the Climate Action Show, Rob. The blockade Australia people see the whole system needs to be stopped. They made a coordinated event stopping rail and road traffic into four large ports in Australia last week. And in a way, I welcomed what they did. They targeted one coal port and three container ports to focus on the consumerism that is also causing climate damage. So what is your first reaction to this sort of direct climate action? I think direct action in support of climate uh, 
needs to be needs to occur. Uh, but I think we have to go beyond protest. I think we have to go beyond stopping consumption as such uh, to really move towards system change. So whilst I support specific actions like the blockade and, and particularly the climate strikes and so on, I think it's fundamentally important that we actually do move towards systemic change. So we have to move towards transformative change. That means we can't do politics as usual. Uh, we really do need to start to coalesce and combine together to become a political force, not simply a protest force, but a political force. And that's going to require us to, to think forward. We know what we're against. We're against oil, we're against coal, we're against particular kinds of mining and so on. But what we need to do is project forward and say, what are we for? And what we're for is democratic control over the key things in our lives, uh, which is basically our environment, energy sources. Uh, we need to look at the four elements and, and assert democratic control over what happens to the land, the air, the water, and to energy. Yeah, well, one of the protesters, Brad Homewood, from Blockade Australia said, we're targeting the economic system because not enough of the climate movement is talking about the system. So could you talk about it? It's called capitalism. It's a formidable and changeable, shape-shifting thing. <laughs> well, well, can you just talk about that? Because we don't talk about it enough. Well, ca capitalism is the source of the problem, and that is the problem. But let's be clear what capitalism is. It's basically the private ownership of the basic means of production. Uh, so we, we talk about production and consumption, but basically that's in the hands of a handful of people. They determine what's produced and what's consumed. So capitalism, when you drill it down to its basics, is about ownership. And it's about private ownership. And it's about what we have, of course, is a form of globalized monopoly capitalism, where increasingly resources are, are concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And it's astonishing when you think about it, that we, we actually know their names. Uh, and we call them by their first names. Uh, there's Bill Gates, there's Elon Musk, and so on. And it's astonishing when you think about it, but they're making key decisions about our lives. So the first and most fundamental question today is who owns us? And we have to transform, the, the key transformational question is about public ownership. What we've seen in the last 30 to 40 years is the continued privatization and selling off and commodification of everything. We've seen the commodification of water. So water used to be something that was freely available as a right. It's not. Now you buy it as a commodity. Air, fresh air is a commodity, both in terms of selling canisters. We have businesses that sell canisters of fresh Hunter Valley, uh, or not Hunter Valley, um, the Blue Mountains air uh, overseas. Uh, and where you buy and purchase your house today very much depends upon, are you out of the smog zones? So fresh air has become a commodity. So what we need to do is decommodify the basics. To do that, we have to produce and consume according to social need. To do that, we have to have our ownership and control over our means of, of life. Yeah. And that to me fundamentally is the core, the core question that the green movements, the climate justice movements must address is who's going to make the decisions? Because at the moment, it's a form of structural authoritarianism where it's a few people who own and control the resources, who make all the decisions. 
So we have to democratize that. The agenda for democratization is nationalization. Yeah. Uh, you know, we used to be proud of things like the Commonwealth Bank because it was the People's Bank. We used to be proud of Qantas because it was state owned. So we need to re-nationalize and we have to nationalize the energy sector as well as across the board, a whole range of the key levers of the economy. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, our politics means that we have to come together around that, ag that agenda of democratic nationalization. Yeah. And I think a lot of people start thinking when you talk about this, oh, communism. But I read the other day in France, they're having a very big push about energy sobriety, they call it. And one, you just mentioned bottled water. Well, they have now mandatory water fountains in every public place. So you can fill up your water bottle, have a, you know, get the children have some a drink out of the bubbler. As we used to have bubblers, this is not a really soviet style makeover it's very simple you know a lot of it is very doable isn't it but um well look the the key terms here are democratic nationalization yeah. so it's not state control it's our control over our resources yeah and that can take place at all levels in our workplaces in our communities and so on we should be plugged into the decision making and be making the decisions over the things that most affect us but also we need to produce to meet social needs. And we have to produce and consume both in terms of social need, but also ecological justice. Because of course, there's the, the non-human environmental entity, the rivers, the mountains, the birds, the trees, and so on, that likewise are part of our world that basically is in our hands to protect and to foster and to cherish. So I think, again, the key thing here is let's rethink what kind of society we really want. We, if we want a society with fresh air, if we want a society with renewable energy sources, uh, we already know from the, inter uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, what needs to be done from the point of view of science to, to really start the process of cooling the planet down. Uh, the reason it's not happening is because we have governments that are subsidizing heavily the dirty fossil fuel industries. We have governments that are granting licenses even today to dirty industries and coal mines. Uh, so what we need to do is take that control back and put it into our hands. That will require a coalition, a coalition of forces with a nationaliz nationalization agenda. Let's yeah. take over the industries. And look, we have corrupt uh, organizations working with governments and the response is, well, let's find the company or fire a few people. No, let's take over the company. <laughs> Right, yeah. they've done wrong. So let's wow. let's have an equity fine. And an equity fine basically says, if you're doing the wrong thing as a company, we're going to actually take over your shares so that they become the people-owned shares. And then we will determine what your company does into the future. So there's ways and means of doing this kind of thing. But that's that's the key agenda. Yeah. Well, I can't understand when we have a great financial crisis or a pandemic, we bail out those companies because they're essential. They're too big to fail why don't we privatize them in this why didn't we and why still if it happens again why don't we do it this is exactly right and it also shows two things the COVID-19 crisis showed several things it showed that the state is fundamentally important that it can intervene in a very profound quick way spend lots of money in what is perceived to be done in an emergency a crisis time we need that kind of intervention at the hands of the state, but it needs to be our state, not their state. 
And we know that during the global financial crisis, for example, there was banks in Scotland that were going down the gurgler. So the British government bailed them out. Then after the crisis had gone through, they gave it, the banks back to the private investors. And you think, hang on, why don't we just retain that bank in, in the people's hands? And that's the same kind of thing that we should be doing here, is that use the resources that we have collectively in the collective interest, but not want, in the interest of the private sector. But I want, I want to know why. What are they frightened of? You know, is it frightened of big government, that governments don't take back the bank and say, no, we're keeping it now. Now we've paid for this with taxpayers' money. It is now owned by the people. Why don't they do it? This is about politics. Look, the Labour Party, for example, is no longer what we used to know as the Labour Party. Mm. Um, the socialist agenda was dropped years ago. And the socialist agenda was basically an agenda that says we're going to nationalise industries. We're going to have national control, people's control over water, for example, rather than privatised water companies uh, ruling the roost. Um, we're going to have banks and resources for people uh, that's in the people's hands for the people's interests. Uh, what we need is that kind of politics. Because if yeah. you want to confront capitalism, then there has to be an ism that confronts it. And the ism that we have is eco-socialism. Because eco-socialism addresses the ownership question. And the ownership question, in the end, is the most fundamental question. And we can start addressing that question by doing things like nationalizing water, nationalizing energy, um, and have democratic input and control and design these industries for social purposes, not private profit. Well, your area of expertise is transnational climate Oh, environmental crime. Who are the climate criminals? I interview people, for example, in Bangladesh who say, you are a climate criminal. And that's a term used, you know, by countries um, about Australia. So who are these transnational environmental criminals and how can they be caught and, and controlled? Well, basically, that's there's two parts to add to that. Uh, we're talking here about ecocide, ecocide on a global scale. So ecocide by its very nature, defined, is defined as a crime against the environment. It's a destruction and degradation of the environment at human hands. But the ones who are doing it in a systematic way, worldwide and globally, since the last four or 500 years, and it's related to the age of imperialism and colonialism and so on, it's those who are extracting and, and contaminating the environment. And it, you scratch the surface, and very quickly, you discover it's the transnational corporations in the mineral sectors, the, the resources sectors, who are doing the most damage, but that's connected to the global capitalist system. So it's a systemic issue. So the carbon criminal is both a system, but it's also specific players, the transnational corporations. Now, there has been some research done that actually that specifies the climate damage by corporations. And when I say corporations, I'm including here state corporations. So it's private corporations and state corporations, but, but they're both oriented towards a dividend. And the dividend goes back into private interest, basic, basically. So what we need to do, the, the carbon criminals, uh, both from the point of view of intent and from the point of view of result, are transnational corporations colluding with our governments uh, to keep perpetrating what we already know our harms and wrongs. We've well, known about climate change since officially since 1990, right? Globally. 
yeah. everybody signed off on the Rio uh, Declaration. So we've known officially, now we knew well before that in the science well before 1990. However, there's no excuse for what's happening today. None whatsoever. So the climate criminality is that combination of state corporate crime. Well, how, you know, this is your field. How far are we into, you know, bringing them under control? Chasing them. Nuremberg trial. When's it happening? Well, look, the, there's several things going on all, all at the same time. There's many prongs to political activism. So there's yeah. a strong stop ecocide movement that is talk, promoting the idea of an international crime called ecocide uh, during peacetime, because there is one already during wartime. Uh, but that's just symptomatic of the problem. And the problem is that we need to have control over what our companies are doing and where they're doing it, how they're doing it, and to whom they're doing it. So basically, it comes back to that fundamental question again. Who's going to own and control the big companies? Who's going to determine how land is used, the water, the air, and so on? So it always, always returns back to that fundamental question of who controls the means of production. Oh. Well, I'm interested in who controls our thinking, and a lot of it is through the academies and through the media. And I, you know, that Chomsky book, Manufacturing Consent, and it's consent for the system we have. But now we can't use that system any longer. It's it's killing us. We're walking off a cliff. So manufacturing a new form of consent, a new narrative, uh, a new media, media will be better without all that corporate control. But still, you know, there's alternative media as well. What do you think the new narrative, just in a nutshell? We have to view news and nonprofit media as a public good. And we, when we recognize it as a public good, then we must promote it and sustain it and fund it. And that is very different from commercial media, which is there for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make a profit. Now, often the profit making is through the fear mongering. And so you have the Murdochs who, who basically will put down climate change and everything else because it's profitable for them to do that, and it's also ideological. So to counter that, we need to recast the role of the media into the that notion of it's a public good, and therefore, we again, we need to democratize the media. We need to break up the conglomerates that control whole media, the whole hierarchy, right? Horizontal and vertical in some cities is controlled by one or two organizations. We got to break that up because basically that's not healthy and that goes against the idea of alternative viewpoints and so on. So media as a public good, but we need to fund it and we also need to break up the monopolies because that too is about ownership. Yeah. And so we need to put the media, many, much of the media into public hands, not into private hands. The same thing pertains to things like Twitter and Facebook and so on. You've got these billionaires and, and of course, I'm not gonna comment on Twitter, but basically what you see there is the, the destruction of the truth through Twitter and the, the promulgation of a particular kind of right-wing and conspiratorial agenda. Um, what we need, of course, as I've said, is put the control over many of our media into public hands for the public good. Uh, that means breaking up the, the, the big conglomerates, but also means that providing way more opportunity for, for people 
at the grassroots to have a voice. Yeah. Well, coming back to the blockaders, um, I feel they've cut through, you know, in this narrative. If it was reported, it wasn't very much reported, but, but you know, four cities, they did this coordinated um, event, let's say. Um, we have globalised capitalism, and I think most people find it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And just to finish, would you like to just give some encouragement to the it's a discoordinated activist. Climate action movement is a very broad, you know, it's like um, people just pecking at a something from all different angles. It's multi-pronged, but it is totally independent of those other forces. Well, would you like to give a message to them? And you're speaking on a community radio station which which runs on, you know, donations and, and totally independent. It's not uh, masterminded by anybody. So would you like to just give a message to those sort of people who are listening, who take all that action, who really can't see the bigger picture but need to keep going? Well, look, the key thing is we need to keep taking action, but we need to coordinate our actions around a political objective. And the political objective is to take political power because ultimately all we're doing is raising and flagging the issues, but without the levers of power in our hands, then we, we are very limited in what we can do. And we can do it. We can do it because basically this is what this is the essence of what politics is about. So we need to come together. We can agree on the basics that most people in this sphere are against capitalism. Then we have to ask the question, what are you for? And if you're for clean air, sufficient energy, renewable energy, and so on, then you must say who controls air who controls land who controls energy and it comes back comes back to that question set your sights on taking ownership and control over the central levers of the economy that is something that collectively we must do if you want to fight against capitalism right have you any idea how to do it well it's it's a political process um and and it's partly an education amongst ourselves, but it's also being very clear that protest in and of itself is not enough. We actually have to have a political project and the political project must be to reconstitute politics in a way we, we, we can actually challenge those who are making the key decisions. Certainly one of the, the hooks, so to speak, of this kind of agenda will be nationalization. So if water is an issue, nationalize. Nationalize the water industry. Um, if energy is an issue, think really clearly about nationalizing energy. These are public goods. Now, and these, this kind of thing has happened in other countries. And it is something that we can achieve. And we can start with the finance sector as well. We can re-nationalize banks, right? And, and it's not as difficult as people may think. And what the COVID-19 crisis showed us is that in periods of emergency, such as a climate emergency, we can act decisively through the mechanism of the state. But it has to be our state, and it has to re reflect our democratic interests and social needs. Fantastic. Thank you. So that was Professor Rob White. He's the author of The Extinction Curve, and he's from the University of Tasmania. Slavery is back.
Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. And now here's a song that I like very much, sent to me by Nick Clyde from Lock the Gate, Australia. It's by Meraki May, and they have created a song out of the blockade, Bentley blockade and the Lismore floods, and it's a song of defiance and resistance, and I hope you enjoy it. Warrior. Thousands of students across Australia will join millions around the world striking for political action on the We are the voices of nature. Come little darling, walk with me all along the red hot ground. The sea slowly rising, we're slowly dying underneath the red hot sun. Come, little darling, walk with me all along the red hot ground. The sea's slowly rising, we're slowly dying underneath the red hot sun. Come, little darling, walk with me all along the red hot ground. The sea's slowly rising, we're slowly dying underneath the red hot sun. And the ground. That you walk upon's got nothing left to lose. She'll shake it till she breaks it into pieces, and you'll blame it on another cause you've been fighting for. You're dying and we know that you are lying when you say you don't know My name's Wenzel, I'm with Blockade Australia. I'm taking action today on the stolen lands of the Bidjigal people and I'm taking action against our government's inaction on climate. The Australian government has been actively blocking climate action and fueling climate denialism for the last few decades and this has caused us 
incentives and you know to, to mining billionaires it pays them to keep doing what they're doing gives them subsidies tax subsidies and the people who try and defend it the people with the grassroots the, the people who care about the future of the planet they get cut they get locked up locked up they're the ones doing the crimes here we go some fun people on site having a good morning on the tracks blocking trains with me it's good to see everyone's here for the big spectacle what a morning in blockade australia climbers stopped the traffic in four major Australian ports. They threw down a gauntlet, in my opinion. Neve, who I interviewed last week, said, we don't have all the answers, but there are many people who do. And so we've picked up the gauntlet today and invited two guests who have thought deeply and published on how to get out of the hole we are still digging for ourselves. Elizabeth Bolton is a security theorist and she's been on the program before and I hope listeners will remember and keep looking up her work. Um, she sees climate chaos as the greatest threat and she says the old world is crumbling. It's no use propping up a broken model. That's her quote. So I think like the blockader, she wants to see a system change. With her army background, she's well aware of the revolutions and wars that have plundered and destroyed civilizations and ecosystems. And her plan E for the earth mobilizes grassroots people and reconfigures the military to repair, rebuild and protect. So welcome, Liz. What, what's your first response to the blockade Australia action in four ports? Um, it's just incredible um, empathy and and um, acknowledgement of of what they're doing and how how they're feeling and how important it is. So I was really struck by um, the language that they often use the words like killing, like this system is killing us, and um, and that they were doing self defence and the world can't defend itself. And you know, just picked up a lot of uh, I guess sort of language which points points to the idea of a you know an over, a, a very dangerous threat <laughs> you know so from a security person you pick up those sort of words um but also um you know i, I think they're, they're diagnosed diagnosing the problem to me that it seems it's exactly correct that the the leadership has has completely failed them and um you know there's there is it, it does make me a bit angry actually because there are a whole stack of people being paid a fortune sitting on boards um, in high-level government positions, high-level UN positions, and they're not stepping up to the leadership task that, that the situation requires them. And especially this year, as all these incredible warning signs are coming in um, that this climate system's unravelling, like from a security perspective, to me, that's like your intelligence agencies giving you all this early warning of an advancing threat, and the commander's job is to respond to that um, intelligence as it's coming in and and we just don't we see it um, all we see in Australia is this sort of incredible focus on AUKUS and um, though you know it's it's like they've switched off the lights and and in fact in that they're, they're actually it makes me think that they're actually abrogating the key role of what a government and why people agree to pay taxes and have a state structure is to provide security and in fact they're abrogating that responsibility so yeah. It questions the whole leadership, basically, and their, their legitimacy as leaders. It does, but on that analogy of the intelligence feeding in 
information. I think it's really confusing because the intelligence we're getting, we don't want to get. We don't want to hear this because like the people blockading the ports, they, they're blockading the whole scheme of consumerism that fills those container ships, the, the coal that goes out and makes us a profitable and wealthy country. It's, it's, an in, it's a kind of intelligence we don't want to get because the next step would be to disband that system. Yeah, but it, it's not a shock, you know. We've had 20 years or 30 years more of people try understanding this problem and, it, you know, there's just been too much abrogation of, well, I, I think some people would say, um, you know, co-option of governance, fun governance functions. And so yeah. whether, whether other people were weak or whether it was co-option, at any rate, they've failed. And um, and I think that the community have to start acknowledging. And I, I, I do think there's sort of... There's elites across the board, um, you know, media, um, the media coverage and um, universities getting co-opted and, you know, it does require a bit of guts to speak up and, yeah, um, there's just, yeah, I, I, perhaps actually perhaps a, a military analogy actually is to say there have been so many speak, people speaking up but they are actually overwhelmed. So we are, in fact... I know this sounds confronting. You could say that the hyper threat has taken the governance structures and the communication structures. And, you know, that's an incredibly, um, you know, if you think even militarily, that's a, when has there been a situation where you're under attack but your own command and control has been taken by the enemy? Yeah. You know, I know that's a strong metaphor, but that's sort of where we're at. Well, I'm very influenced by a book by Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent. It's an old book, but he shows how the universities, the schools, the media all conspire to make us all feel part of a system. And mm. until now in the Western world, in the, say, post-Second World War world, we've all kind of had an affluent, you know, increasingly welfare state up to a certain point. Now it's all collapsing. All those societal things are collapsing what do you think, you know, if the, those organs, those gatekeepers, teachers, universities, media, what consent do you think they should be manufacturing now? What what do you think we need to be signing up to now to save ourselves? Um, yeah, I, I, somehow the they've got to create space for the, the community to, um, in fact, take the role of what government and proper intelligence agencies should be doing and which is interpreting those results and, and organising and, you know, creating um, creating networks where that community um, strength and voice can be rebuilt to, to have a new mandate and, um, and in fact, more, more strongly stand up, up to this. Um, you know, they have to, one of the things, that, there's very simple things is if they want a really simple thing is actually just to create space for voice as, as what you do but on a much bigger scale. So, for example, those people's stories would be in the major newspapers as to why they're doing it and our, our media would, um, you know, start giving them space and, and people like Plan, I, you know, point out again that Plan E has been censored um, quite heavily. There's a few people who have opened the door, but, you know, I've tried all the teals. I've tried, I was in Geelong last night and someone says, oh, haven't you taken it to Teal, such and such, and I said, do you know how many times I've emailed their office? Um, so, you know, there was an election. I, I'm starting to get a bit annoyed because there was an election um, that was pretty much had a climate mandate, and that's why those Teals were elected. And the, the, I guess the other thing is that increasingly what I'm, 
and a part of the hyper threat framing is to get away from this system narrative. I notice they often talk about the system is killing us, the system, etc. And that is a bit of a cop out. Not, I think it's also very similar to the poly crisis framing that the WEF are pushing, which there's no accountability in it. It dodges any accountability. It's just like, oh, it's just this amorphous system. There's no decision makers in it or anything. But in fact, there are decision makers and there are people who have incredible power who are making these decisions. Um, and so, you know, I guess one thing I'm starting to think is uh, another line of action is to start really holding to account those people who have platforms like the Climate Institute, Climate Council, who in fact still shut out um, some of the more the stronger climate voices. Yeah. Um, and well, you know they they're being given a platform for a reason, and if they're not if they're not using it, if, um, if they're just legitimising government policy, that's not good enough, you know. Yeah. Well, this is dynamite, really, because this now focuses on the people who, you know, the good guys who are who are supporting climate action, but doing it in a um, pulling their punches, holding holding back. And the next speaker after you is going to talk about capitalism, which is the overarching economic system. But let's. Um, oh, that's really good that you say that the the system framing is isn't pinpointed enough. And we need to be more forensic, maybe. But let's do that in another show, you know, like how to do that. But just let's get back to your plan E. Um, I really noticed that you support community action. You were on Radio EcoShock in Canada last week and on the Sustainable Hour in Geelong, which many listeners here will know. You supported us in Radiothon, and thank you for that. So I can see you believe in community media, creating that community space. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. On the home front. How can the ordinary person, you know, the tradie, the home carer, how can they get involved in this? Stop talking about Plan yeah. E because the listeners might not remember it. Yeah, what Plan E is, is it's, it is actually the world's first um, climate and ecologically centred security strategy. And um, so it's, it's, it's a whole strategic approach which says that the major threat is, the, is our foundational security, getting the a livable planet that's you know number one food water shelter and so on um and for all forms of life it may just seem so basic <laughs> um but then it's it, it it takes a really big picture to um mobilization and restructuring and that now now security we, we can instead of just at the moment the security forces just focus on what i call state security you know they're sort of militaries and police that you already know um but now we would can currently look at three things, which are planet, human, and state, and and 
and build a whole lot of new um, agencies and institutions that can currently consider those three themes. Um, so just as just imagine our intelligence agencies would be revamped so that they draw in all the signals that are in fact going up around flushing at the world at the moment. You know, some incredible, you know, the sea ice, the sea ice, the sea temperature, the air temperature all at once. You know, this is um these are major warning signs. And um so they would be interrogating and, and there's a whole lot of things going on with humans, of course, as well, with threat in the airspace, with um, sexual violence and human rights problems and so on. So, in fact, the intelligence agency would be for the people rather than at the moment it seems to work for elites. Um, so it's just recalibrating the whole security force to be protecting the people and the planet. And so we'd be raising... Um, Planetary security force, perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm thinking it's it's sort of on the order of 80 million people around the world working. And it, the, the main thing with it is that there is a year, a full year of planning and deliberate planning and, and the public would get skilled up in a whole lot of planning methodologies and threat analysis um, methods and supported in that planning process. But they, they're given the concepts of the hyper threat and so on. And then because they've got the knowledge of their particular community or their sector or whatever it is, then they apply those tools to their area and start developing um, some plans. But then then we that planning is for um, Plan F, which is Fast and Furious 4, which is a four-year whole of society mobilisation where just simply the mission is to um, hit it with everything we can in four years, like emergency wartime mobilisation across every sector, um, you know, every community. And, and you know those backyard blitz shows when people come in in a weekend and they transform someone's house or something? It's sort of like that but for the planet. Um, and so it's a, a civilian mobilisation, which is not um, militarisation. But that, that first year of planning, deliberate planning, would also be training a stack of people so that they then become, there's a whole lot of new jobs that actually have to be created, like um, transit transition eco-coaches and um, transition teams that go in and help support communities transition and so on. And, and of course, you know, there's at the moment with um, AUKUS, they're announcing all these massive packages um, with TAFE and universities to skill up the workforce and the STEM workforce for AUKUS. But in fact, we need to be doing that for the hyper response. Yeah. Um, so there's those grand, every time you look at some of those grand scale things they're doing for AUKUS or defence, imagine that that was being done for um, a, a hyper-response to the hyper-threat. Yeah, well, I look at the United Nations level. So, Mood, that's from the domestic level you're talking. Now let's look at the international level. I mm. look at those UN conferences, and I'm increasingly disillusioned with them, allowing fossil fuel companies in, you know, even as part of national delegations. But this year the terrible thing is that it's hosted by a petro-state, the and I wonder what the alternative is, because once you've mobilised all these people around the world, a lot of cities and um, whole countries have signed up to the uh, Climate Emergency Declaration, but there's no sort of treaty or anything to bind them together yeah. throughout the year. All we've got is this annual two-week talk fest, increasingly dominated, I think, by the fossil fuel people. Yeah, it's just crazy. And... And in fact, so the plan is setting up a structure where far more people can participate in the in the discussion. I mean, you mentioned tradies. I, I remember talking to a tradie who said, I knew that they needed to mobilise stacks of electricians for the solar. And I said, you know, has anyone, do you ever get asked or, you know, how would you 
mobilise that many electricians and they said they never ask us. Um, you know, they're completely cut off from the conversation. I guess at a planetary level, what I'm thinking, I don't believe in that UN structure anymore. And I think um, that communities around the world have to, in their climate emergency declarations, actually have a forum where all of them come together and leaders around of each country declare a climate emergency declaration and then have a, um, a meeting where they push for a, pl a planetary crisis peace treaty across the world. And then there's actually a whole stack of security arguments why this is in everyone's interest because the, the fight for what's left on a breaking planet is everybody loses. Um, so there's no winners. Whoever wins the war, everyone loses. So there's actually no security um, validity in our current process. So this is about securing everybody's security in the planet, of course. Um, but the other thing I would say is that narrative and having a better story is has to get out there and um, that infects people's psyche across the board mm. and so people can start seeing how stupid it is what we're doing. And so, um, and that's why, in fact, Plan E has been really quite aggressively stifled because it presents an alternate narrative because it says that the word threat means that there are conscious intent to cause harm. There are people, even though it's legal, even though it's sort of got social licence in a lot of cases, it is still making decisions to kill millions of people on an incredible scale. And so we have to, that's why I think it's important to reframe it as a, a threat because it's conscious, a conscious decision to do killing. You know, the, the narrative needs to change so we can call them out and who, who is making that decision, you know, who's the CEO of ExxonMobil? does require a whole new narrative to get out and a way of seeing the world. And we are in an environment where power knows that and they're shutting down those narratives and they're controlling the narrative by putting, co-opting a lot of those climate and even women's security places with sort of yes people who will talk about it but not going to push things too hard. Um, yeah. And I think we have to realise that's that we've been caught out that way. Um, and the same thing happened with Biden and Albanese in the election. They talked the talk. Then once they got in power, it was a different story. So they assured a whole lot of people who were concerned about climate that they would prioritise it. But, you know, I don't think anyone in Australia really expected our security posture to be so heavily orientated towards this sort of World War Three, Yeah. Posture. That's so alarming, isn't it? The What is really happening, civil society breaking down in many places, authoritarian leaders taking taking prominence, it's, it seems to me, how have we got time for this? You know, we should be focused on the single threat of climate change, but not that climate change is the enemy. We are the enemy. It's our insistence on subsidising, you know, fossil fuels. It's our insistence on continuing growth. You know, these this is the enemy. And I think we're up against globalised capitalism. And I wonder if we, we really know this enemy. You say, who's the head of Exxon? These We're going to ask the next speaker a little bit about that. He He's a criminal lawyer and he follows up transnational environmental crime. So I'll ask him about that. But I wonder if the climate movement is really organised enough, doesn't know the enemy well enough to take um, proper action. Do you think we need more coordination to be strategic and effective against this particular enemy? I mean, the basic sort of idea is if you're going to raise, um, like there's a, a war theory that says that the first step is to raise an army that is as strong as possible. And and there's, and there's to do that, you require st structure to build people with skill sets and, um, and 
well, one, there's a lot of people focus on the individual skills. So there's the individual capabilities, but group capability is another thing entirely. And that's the capacity of that organisation to harness all of that talent from people in a, a coordinated fashion. And I mean, you think about it with a sort of, you know, beautiful dance choreography or an orchestra, like an orchestra conductor, that you, you, it's not, and some people think, oh, that's, that's sort of top-down control or something, but it it is the way to harness human capacities to have some form of organisation. And you think of any team environment, paramedics or anything, you have systems to manage people and, and you get, so the, the, the potential of every individual, you know, it's one plus one equals five because they're all working together sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's possibly a need to um, professionalise, work out some structures that I think are actually a little bit more grounded in ethics. I think what's, I think to be, if I'm going to just be frank, I think what's happening is it's so, when you have no structure, it becomes a thing of who's got the loudest voice and who knows people and they seem to um, dominate in some of these peace and environmental um, organisations as opposed to having a, a merit-based focus where somebody who's done the work, they're actually a quite expert in this area and they're going to sort of get, they're not going to be on the stage because someone with a loud mouth always wants to be on the stage. 3CR. You know, you were deployed to East Timor and Iraq, I know, and I think you've also worked in Africa and Pacific Islands on civilian logistics and risk communication. So you understand these systems and chains of command even. And I wonder if we had a military that was focused on the climate chaos that we are creating as the greatest threat and the transnational companies and the petrostates as the enemy, how would you deploy your forces just in a nutshell? Where would you start putting your money and your training you know in the short term the first thing would actually be a probably a, a train the trainer course like to run run a course and all these um like a three-day course to teach people some of the, the lingo because this is one of the things of how people can work together is they have the same phrases and and they're on the same sort of mental framework with some things so teach them about the concept of the hyper threat and entangled security and so on mobilize the arts the alternate arts and um, organization to make amazing TikToks and videos and things for information campaign to get the narrative's got to get out first of all and it needs much more substantial support. Raising a thing that which I've called the point force, which is point because it's got the pointiest end of the problem, which is the um, economic and finance situation. So that they are like a massive organization of white collar crime type people who can track all of these transactions and who are the decision makers causing harm. And there's actually a function in it called tracking harm because some of these transactions, for example, in, in um, the Congo, they did analysis of some of these um, environmental crime, actually. I know you're talking about this in SEC, but when they they, they just picked five transactions to try and work out, well, who, who was doing those transactions and what they found, they had to track it through all these offshore accounts and, you know, a, a maze of sort of diffused deliberate covering covering of the tracks of who's who's done that damage in the Congo. So you need people who know how to, you know, IT IT sort of people and legal people and, and basically white-collar crime people to track who's making those decisions. But actually I think that probably the most important thing is to redefine threat and get some of those laws in like ecocide and so forth because then those decision-makers, that, that gives a 
a mechanism to hold a whole stack of board members and everyone to account. So you actually need to raise a whole stack of legal experts and tools and they would possibly as part of emergency response that, you know, that plan E that first year is that they would set that new legal framework in place. Yeah. Um, and um, and they would be given warning of how long they've got to um, change their, their actions and um, and they would have transition teams allocated to those companies to support them in that transition out. Um, but if they, they didn't comply, then there's you have the normal tools of law to um, cease their operations or have administrations take over them. But, yeah, that's um, that's a few things. <laughs> all right. Well, thank there's you. There's more. I can see you stay up late at night thinking of all the logistics involved. But, look, ideas have their time. You might not feel that people are sidelining you a little bit now, but you are getting a lot of coverage. You know, you are starting to penetrate a bit and listeners have heard your name several times. So we're listeners, we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Bolton. Her publication is Plan E. Where can the listeners check it out if they want to read it? DestinationSafeEarth.com. Thank you very much, Liz. Lovely to talk to you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good morning, Melbourne. Good morning, Australia. Hi. Um, I'm coming to you from Melbourne. Uh, this is Munro. Hello. I am currently blockading the port of Melbourne. Um, I'd like to start off this live stream by acknowledging that I'm performing this action on stolen Wurundjeri land. Um, sovereignty was never ceded. Um, this is stolen land that we walk on every day. You can see the land around me. Nothing like it should be. This land is being completely desecrated um, for the good of the few. I want to start off this by talking about what I'm doing here. Um, what I'm doing currently is direct action. This is direct action against the Port of Melbourne, but also the system as a whole. It's destroying ecosystems, it's destroying species. Species are going extinct every day. Um, we're in a really dire situation right now. We're in a dire situation, and so here we are taking dire action. Um, ignoring it isn't part of that. A lot of people ignore it, and a lot of people go by their daily lives ignoring it and we know we know about it a lot of people know about it you know a lot of people keep it in their minds and they think about it but when they think about it they get depressed because it is depressing it's depressing to think that the planet we are on is dying it's really sad and very rare that you get such a platform for political expression you know um, I'm very thankful that I have this opportunity and so many people don't get this opportunity <laughs> to express these type of things, not in any meaningful way. The more people who do this, you know, the, the more shot we have of getting through this together. Um, you know, that's all we need to do. We need to get through this together. Thanks for listening tonight to the Climate Action Show. The song tonight was by Miraki May, and we've heard from Blockade Australia activists dangling themselves dangerously over the ports of Brisbane, Sydney, Newcastle and Melbourne. And also from military strategist and thinker Dr Elizabeth Bolton and author and transnational environmental criminologist Professor Rob White. Thank you for listening.
all feedback is welcome. Please contact us at Radio 3CR 039419 This is Carl. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's Carl. It's Carl. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.